These days, professors do too much professing and not enough effective teaching. That's the view of Jose Bowen, president of Goucher College, who says that maybe we shouldn't even call college instructors professors anymore. A better approach would be to think of these men and women not as sages on the stage, but as cognitive coaches, much like the personal trainer at the gym, only for the mind. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge On Air podcast. I'm Jeff Young, an editor here. A few weeks ago, I got to sit down with Bowen in his office at Goucher College, a leafy liberal arts campus outside of Baltimore. We talked about why he believes in what he calls teaching naked, meaning going tech-free in the classroom. He's not against technology, but he worries that things like PowerPoint and lecture capture systems are propping up an outdated notion that professors are there to deliver information. Bowen is all about active learning, and he says that should be the focus of discussions about college teaching. And the stakes are high, since he sees effective liberal arts teaching as an antidote to the toxic political climate we're in. We'll have that conversation right after this. This episode of the Ed Surge On Air podcast is brought to you by the Ed Surge Next newsletter. Get the latest news and views about higher education technology each week. Sign up for the Ed Surge Next newsletter. Just visit edsurge.com and click on subscribe. I'm here today with Jose Bowen, president of Goucher College and author of the book, Teaching Naked Techniques, A Practical Guide to Designing Better Classes. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. So, okay, your book offers, I feel like it has kind of a a broader critique almost of professors. Uh, It mentions that professors are not normal students, and so they they may have trouble like putting themselves in the position of the students that they have in their classroom, right? Because professors are outliers. They're mm-hmm. overachieving students. Yes. They're the kind of students who wanted to sit in the front and do everything for the class. But most students probably don't feel like that. Could you talk a little bit more about this disconnect? Sure. The, you know, as a faculty member myself, uh, I am a member of the oddball club, um, right? I liked school so much, I'm still here. You know, I never wanted to leave, uh, and that is unusual. So most students want to graduate, leave, and never come back, right? This is not their favorite place. Um, And so since we've discovered that teaching is mostly about motivation, that matters because for faculty, motivation was usually not the primary problem. We were motivated. We did the extra reading. We understood. We were excited about Foucault. Oh, my God, I've always wanted to read this. This is fantastic. Um, and we came to class prepared. We liked to participate. I mean, for, so for we were model students, most of us, for the, for the most part. So, But now we know all of this new stuff about um, how right, we've had this whole paradigm shift from teaching to learning, from the stage on the, you know, the, the sage on the stage to the guide on the side, which which was the beginnings of a revolution that really had to do with, with brain, uh, with cognition and, and, and behavioral science, we now understand much more about how the brain works and how learning works. And so as Terry Doyle says, the, the one who does the work does the learning. So as a teacher, I can't do the work for you. You have to do the work. And the analogy they use for this is is the fitness, right? So... The fitness coach can't exercise for you, 
right? Ultimately, only you can do that. This trainer, this fitness trainer, this, yeah. This trainer, this coach, this person is, you know, and, so, and, and, and again, they're the same model, right? A fitness coach is a fitness coach because he or she likes to exercise, and that's why they're all buff and they're right. They love the gym. You're coming, and you probably don't love the gym, but you know you have to be here, and so what worked for them isn't going to work for you, right. you know? Right, right. Um, so, but also, I mean, the, the analogy goes, goes, actually goes a lot further, that... <clears throat> Right, all that equipment, right? More knowledge isn't necessarily more useful in the same way that more exercise equipment by itself is not more useful. Uh, so, this fitness coach knows about equipment, knows about your body, but mostly they get paid, and it's a big industry, they mostly get paid because they're motivators. What they're paid to do is to know about you. What is it that that motivates you. What do you really want to accomplish here? Oh, you, you really want to fit into that prom dress. You, you will have to, to get on the bike and, and pedal faster. You will have to do more work um, if you really want it. So, but, but the goal is what the motivation is understanding you and what matters to you. Uh, so we've learned a lot about teaching. And what we've learned about is that the, the and we always knew that the expert and the novice were different, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, Great teaching is about the ability to break things down into steps, right? So you're an expert. You, you put, you've put all the pieces together, but most people need practice at step one, then step two, and then a little bit of step three. And, of course, the irony is that the other people who are really good at this are the video game designers, right? They are really good at breaking things down into problems, that place that they call the pleasantly frustrating, right? If something is too hard, you quit. If something is too easy, you also quit. So finding the right balance is the key. And the problem is that the right balance is different for every person. And so in a classroom, the best you can do is teach to the middle. Mm -hmm. And a video game can be pleasantly frustrating for everybody simultaneously. And that's a very hard thing for us to do in a classroom of even five students because they're five different human beings. So that's the paradox of teaching. And that's why I think... Um, we're not the best model, and so you know the new book is about thinking about teaching as a design problem. And but the people we're designing for are the people who are not like us. So the, of course, the the title "Teaching Naked," um, you're you're talking about getting technology out of the classroom. But what's wrong with having tech in the classroom? Well, what's wrong with tech in the classroom is there are a couple things. The first is that people don't multitask, right? We've, we've now been able to put this, 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 this lie to bed um, that people can actually, you know, shop on Facebook and listen to your lecture and take good notes all simultaneously. So um, the more distractions there are in class, um, the, the harder it is for people to concentrate, for people to learn. So there's, there's a whole argument about um, what we can do at one time. But the other argument to me is that classroom teaching is always going to be more expensive. It's just going to cost more to bring people together and to, you know, to drive to campus, to park, to do all of that sort of stuff. So if all I'm then going to do is replicate something that I could do equally well online, no one's going to care. And no one is certainly going to pay the premium that we charge mm -hmm. for online classes. So as with any kind of you know, operation or organization, I want to maximize the value of the thing that costs the most. So face-to-face -face classroom time costs the most. It's absolutely the most expensive thing that we do. So during that time, I should prioritize the activities that have the most value, but also those activities that can't be replicated elsewhere. And look, it's the same thing when you go to a meeting and some guy reads his PowerPoint. 
and, and, and especially if you've gone across the country to a convention and have assembled all these people you want to talk to and it's, they line you up in a room and they read their PowerPoint. And you think, well, wait, why didn't you send me the PowerPoint in advance? Let me read the PowerPoint and then say, so everybody read the PowerPoint. Now let's have the discussion. Or, I mean, let me hit a couple of highlights, but, you know, for whatever. Um, or when that happens, you multitask and you start to shop online. You just start to go do something else because you're, 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 check you're your bored email. or you're checked out. And, of course, the problem is that, well, not everybody read the PowerPoint in advance. Okay, so for those of you who didn't read the PowerPoint in advance, but that's a different problem. That's the accountability problem, right? And so I have a whole section on why, you know, don't, you know, don't, don't wag your finger at students, but also don't summarize the reading for them. Because if you summarize the reading for the students who didn't do it, you're just enabling them and say, oh, you know, hey, I'm a smart student. Why would I do the reading? I just put up my hand and say I didn't do the reading, and the teacher will summarize it for me. That's a whole lot easier, right? So, so in some ways, there's a, there's a corollary to the economic argument, which is that um, college is too expensive. And we now have online providers who are cheaper, in fact, even free, right? These MOOCs are free. So people say, well, but the MOOCs aren't very successful. Most people drop out. I say, yes, they're also open admission. They're open enrollment, right? So, and who does best at MOOCs? College graduates. So, so one of my cuckoo ideas is that maybe we should require all seniors to pass a MOOC before they graduate. And your first MOOC, we would help you with it, right? We would help. But what we're, what we're gearing you up to do is when you graduate from my college, you should be able to, to take MOOCs on your own because five years from now, ten years from now, you are going to have to learn things on your own. Mm-hmm. And it will be more efficient and cheaper for you to go do this online than to come back and get another degree. And so that's really the point of education. Uh, so I, I call this the learning economy, right? I think the information age is over. It's not who knows the most. Right. We've become confused. We think our smartphone is smart, and it's not. Our right? smart classrooms not smart either, is what you're saying. not smart either. Smart is the ability to change your mind. So we should be focusing. To me, the most valuable thing in education is the ability to change your mind. Yes, there's content. But again, going back to the first principle, the one who does the learning, right? the one who does the work does the learning. So I can't actually force it into you. So you're going to have to learn how to learn content on your own, which you can do at home. What you could do in my classroom is learn how to change your mind. And so integrating content has become much more important. Again, you know, without having to get political, our, our world, the Internet, has opened up lots and lots and lots of alternative facts, right? Lots and lots of other ways to look at the world and, frankly, lots of garbage. So the need to be discerning, uh, to be analytical, to be able to think for yourself, to be able to say, I don't think... That's not really causal. That's correlation. That's not really a fact. That's gone up in value at the very time that professing has gone down in value. Hmm. So I would argue that, like the fitness coach, we should stop calling people professors who are our teachers and start calling them cognitive coaches. Because professing has less value because your phone professes, the internet professes. What's really important is the ability to think Right? to think, is this good information? Is it, is it useful? And if it is, how do I integrate it? How do I turn that, that content into knowledge? How do I figure out what to do with that? So that's really valuable. It's best done face-to-face in the classroom. And learning content, you can, in fact, do on your own. And I would argue that not only can you, but that our goal as, a, as, a, as, a, as an undergraduate college should be to turn students into voracious, self-regulated learners who can learn content on their own. So if you graduate from college and can't learn new content on your own, we have failed. Right? If you need me, 
Right. That's bad. Let me let me ask you this about professors though, because you the picture that you paint of professors seems very good for the students, but not necessarily what a lot of professors signed up for when they thought of themselves professing or mm-hmm. being in their academic robes or you know, this sort of this is a long standing tradition that people aspire to and you have to go to school a long time to be a PhD. So is, doesn't that, I mean, do, do professors want to, to be in this trainer role? It's a great question. Um, and I would say you need to ask the coal miners and the folks in Detroit on the assembly line the same question. It's true they didn't go to school as long, but right, but they, they were sold a job. You, just, you, can, you can have a career doing this, and, and the world changed. Technology and the world changed. And so now the question is, do I want to stay here and say, just bring coal mining back and it'll be okay and I'll be happy with you? Or you say, you know, I'm sorry, but the, that industry has changed. It doesn't exist the way it used to. And so now we need to be honest about what we need to do to, to prepare you for the, for the future. So professing as a, a job skill um, is still important. I think, uh, you know, there is a place for lecturing and there's a place for professing. If you're going to do it, and again, a lot of, most of us are going to do it because it's, right, it's the nature of the beast. Uh, there's a lot of students and I know enough, let me just talk. Um, so you might as well be good at it. So, so it, I do think that there is a place for saying we need to make lectures and big classes better. I think most of that will be active learning, but right. there's, there, is a, there is certainly a role for professing. But given the competition, it has to be better in the same way that movies set the bar higher for theater. Right? We have a different expectation of theater now that we can also go to the movies. And so if I go to the theater and it's just like a bad movie, well, you know, I could stay at home and watch a bad movie. So, you know, I want a different level of intensity, hmm. uh, you know, et cetera. Um, the same has happened for, for live concerts. You know, I want something at the live concert that I can't just get. If, I, if, if four guys are going to walk out on the stage and just play their CD, I'm not going to go. I, you know, I want I want to know there's you something. You mean their Spotify different. playlist or whatever? Yes, or whatever. Right. It is. Exactly. <laughs> so, so I, I want I want to know something more than I can get from the recording. So I want class to be more than what I could get online. Sure. So that that is a challenge, and not everybody signed up for it. So, you know, here we're, we're certainly in most places have invested in a center for teaching and learning. There's a lot more faculty training going on. Uh, in fact, there's a, there's a lot of discussion about how should we rethink the training during the Ph.D. Now, most Ph.D. programs are including pedagogy. That was certainly not the case when I was going to, to school. But we, we, if you're a content expert, you will have value because there was no Internet. There were no podcasts. So... You will, you know, you have no competition. You can pontificate from the stage and everybody will write down your notes. And so it's changed. In fact, I thought that was really interesting in the book where you mentioned that that one of your advice, if I understand it correctly, was to go and Google what you teach. The professors should go Google what they teach because that's what the students are going to do. That's the competition. Yeah. Well, and also, so, so, and again, the, the interesting thing about that is it might be good. It might be, wow, there is a better lecture here that, and, uh, you know, with, with things like the Khan Academy uh, and uh, other, other sources, I mean, they're really well-produced, shorter videos with animation. Crash Course is one of these, right? Where there's animation. Oh, that guy talks fast, but it's great. He yeah. does talk fast. Great animation. But he's also young, right? He's, he, he looks more like a student. 
It's the same reason why students often want to hear peer to peer. They want they want a student to explain it to them. But it also means that his analogies are better and hipper, right? It's like when I say to a student, you know, it's in popular. Let me give you an example. It's like in that Madonna song, and they go, Madonna. I mean, God, you know, I, th- I was thinking, well, I didn't use the Beatles. I was trying to be hip, but you know, I'm so out of date. So, a lot of teaching is through analogies. So, in fact, one of the places I think that that, that technology is really useful um, is the podcast and and what I would call um, the the redundant podcast, where you have chapters and you give multiple examples of the same thing, right? So, in a classroom, I'm limited by saying, well, let me give you three examples, and then I look around the room and I teach to the middle. I see who's nodding. Oh my God, you're still confused. Come see me after class, and I move on. But in a podcast, I say, here are thirty examples. Mm-hmm. Listen to the three or four that you like, and if you need ten, listen to ten. But listen to only as many as you need. But here's one for the soccer fans. And you don't like soccer? Well, that's not going to help you. Here's one for the baseball fans. You don't like sports? Well, here's one that uses gardening or fashion or cooking or something. Right? Some other way to explain the concept. Um, so that means that more people, again, think video game, right? It's, a, it's pleasantly frustrating for more different types of people all at once. So a podcast can do something I can't do in a lecture, right? In a lecture, I can't say, okay, everybody, cone of silence, put in your headphones, I'm going to talk to all 100 of you individually at once, right? But in a podcast, I could put 100 different examples, and 100 different people could, I could, one could be in French, one could be in Chinese, right? I could have them in different languages simultaneously. There's no way to do that in a class. So for that kind of analogies, for content acquisition, a podcast is much better than a lecture. It's one of the reasons I don't like lecture capture, I was going to ask you about lecture capture, actually, because do you guys do you not do that at Goucher? Because it does seem to the idea is it does send the message of like, well, you could go to the class or you could just watch it later. We don't do it here, um, partly because we have mostly small classes and we only have the one lecture hall, which we rarely use um, because we're a small liberal arts college. But but also lecture capture is like, a, you know, a video of Spider-Man the musical. Right. Um, nobody wants that. Right. If I, I, can, I either want to watch Spider-Man, the movie with all of the special effects and all of the cool stuff it can do. Or I want to go to the theater and watch on Broadway and watch Spider-Man and say, OK, I can see the wires, but I'm at live theater and I don't care. Mm-hmm. But but a video of Spider-Man, the musical is not of any interest to me. Unless I want to study the costumes or something. so. But it's a big business. There are a lot of colleges. It's pretty mainstream these days. Yeah, but part of that is because it gives the illusion of doing something new and innovative and high-tech um, without really doing it. So, yeah, the truth is video capture does give an incremental improvement on learning in a lecture class. So if I have a lecture class and I videotape all the lectures, students can now skip class. And they can also, again, research tells us, they go back and they watch the video and they listen to the same parts over and over again. They're not, right, they, they do actually are more selective. Again, the one thing I can't do in a live class, I can't push the rewind button and say, say that again. They also right. listen at two times the speed. They, they can do all sorts. They can do all of those things. So there is some incremental increase to learning that comes from Uh, making a video of your lecture. So, okay. But you can have a much larger increase in learning by making your lectures, making podcasts, again, as I described them, make a movie rather than videotape your stage play, do multiple analogies, and then in class, do something else. 
do more, do the things that you can't do online. So the things that you can do online better, like a podcast with multivariant examples in multiple languages and closed captioning, that's great. Do that online. And then in class, do something that's more valuable for students in class. So to me, the, the video capture is, is, a, is a halfway measure that, that really is the worst of both worlds. But I'll concede that it does provide some small incremental increase um, over, over just lecturing and looking at, the, looking at your shoes. So how did you, uh, so, uh, you know, at some point in your career, you were a professional jazz musician. How did you get to be a college president? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, so, the, so as a musician, right, I, I play the piano. Um, so I did spend a, a large part of my career listening to other people and making them sound better. Right. The trick about being the pianist in the band is that there's nothing you can do to make the drummer go faster. Right. There's, the drummer's going to do what he wants to do. If the drummer's too loud, the drummer's too loud. You can get a new drummer, but, um, but you do, I don't have any authority to say, you must play softer, you must play faster. So you can goose it a little bit. You can try to do things from your seat in the band to try to you know, make it sound a little bit better. But you know, my job here is the power of persuasion. Uh, you know, that, that joke about the, you know, being a college president is a bit like being in charge of a graveyard. Um, you're over a lot of people, but nobody's listening. Um, so you don't have as much authority as people think. And so to me, my job is to listen to everybody else and help them sound better. And the way I do that is by sometimes, you know, putting a chord here or there and seeing what happens. But, uh, you know, every now and then bringing in a new drummer. Yeah, you don't. Yeah. But, but <laughs> yelling at the drummer never works. So, um, so in some ways, I do a similar kind of creative job. I like I like that bit of the job. You know, the the, the three hour meetings on deferred maintenance are not as much fun. But you know, it's the same thing when you're running a band and you gotta you gotta go make sure the checks are paid and the taxes are paid and all that kind of stuff. So um, it's a little unusual, but I do approach the job in the same way. It's really interesting because you mentioned earlier that you wanted to teach. You know, the, the the goal then is to have students be able to make up their own, change their mind. You know, yeah, but. Then we have this very, you know, the academy is in every survey very liberal, you know, more so than the average population. And there's this polarization in the country right now. So it, is, the, is, the, the, is the old way of teaching, lead, has that led to this kind of crazy world we're in where, where people are, uh, I don't know. I don't. I just fix it because yeah, your approach addresses some of these things. I, I don't know why, though, but I do think that um, empathy for people who disagree with you is essential. That by right, changing your mind, or, or for example, changing the mind of somebody else to talk about how we do this, right? If I want to change somebody else's mind, I don't start by telling them you're wrong. <laughs> I start by telling me, explain to me why you believe what you believe. Mm-hmm. And if I really listen, if I really understand your motivation, right? It's just like teaching, right? If, if teaching is about changing minds, the same, all these techniques will work to heal our country. It's the same thing. It has to start with not what matters to me, but what matters to you, right? Good teaching starts with what matters to your students. It ends with what matters to me. So what I want is to say, let me really understand you and then be able to value. See, I value what you think and I can see why you think that. And here's where I think we start to disagree, or here's where I think another thought might be. But you can't start with that. You have to, it's again, it's not unlike the example we just talked about. You have to start with engagement, with trust, uh, with motivation. Um, And so I do think that this kind of liberal arts education, this kind of understanding, being able to change your mind, 
is an essential feature of democracy. And we've always said that our higher education system was set up to foster democracy and, and to help us be a nation of citizens. And so I do think that what we have to do right now, and also think for an inclusive economy, right? If we really want to level the playing field in terms of economics and giving people opportunities, the key is not to stuff them full of content or knowledge, or even the right knowledge. The, the most important thing is to help people learn to think for themselves and to be able to change, to, to get students to change their minds. I would actually argue that you know the, the graduation system is 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 perverse. Right at the moment, we we measure butt time. Right, the amount of time you sat on your tukas, and then if you do it 120 hours, you get a degree. So we keep time constant and learning variable. Mm-hmm. So I, what would happen if we reverse that? If we said so, learning is going to be constant and time is variable. It might take you longer than it takes me, but you can graduate when you're able to change your mind, when you can hold two ideas in your mind at once without having to pick one. Those are the mental skills that you need to have to be a citizen. And you can stay here for as long as you like until you can do that. But we're not letting you go until you can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, that might be a radically different um, society and country that we live in. Well, great. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. It's been great to be here. Thanks for coming. This has been the Ed Surge On Air podcast. If you're just finding us, we have a rich archive of conversations like this one. You should check it out. To keep up with future episodes, subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you could, take a minute to give us a rating on iTunes, and that'll help others find the show. To send suggestions for future guests, email us at feedback at edsurge.com. We'd love to hear from you. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more conversations about the future of education. Thanks for listening.